We're going to spend some time today looking at Ezekiel 37. This is a series we've been going through, and we've been off for a couple weeks. Uh, next week we'll be in the book of Daniel. We've done Isaiah, we've done Jeremiah, we have done uh, today finishing off Ezekiel, and then we'll go to one other passage, which really are Old Testament prophecies and stories about the coming Messiah. And this one today is about the Messiah that brings abundant life. As we'll see as we go to Ezekiel 37, this is almost starts out like a horror film in that uh, Ezekiel is brought to this valley of bones, these dry bones, that then he prophesies over, that then begin to get up and move uh, in one sense or another, come together, and they prophesize over again and they breathe. And it's a vision of dry bones, which we'll look at first, and then a vision of two sticks coming together. So there's a lot of metaphors and illustrations here, but it's really the idea of the unification of Israel, but also the coming Messiah. And so Ezekiel 37 verses 1 to 14, I won't read all of it here, but it begins by saying that the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out of the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And so then we begin to see where he begins to prophesy over those. And you begin to see in verse 6 through 8 uh, that that is the case. And there is the rattling of the bones, right, like out of a horror film almost. And then at this point they're standing, but they aren't alive. So now you get down to verse 11. He says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. Therefore prophesy over them and I will open their grave. So first of all, in verse 9, he gives it breath, and then he begins to illustrate what the illustration is. And so let's, if we can, look at that briefly. And here he's in the midst of this valley, this vision of this valley and these bones, and is the remains of death and destruction and human carnage, uh, something that we really have never, fortunately in this country, ever had to experience. And so he's in the midst of seeing all of this, and he walks through the midst of this, seeing this slaughter and the idea is it's the image of Israel dying this nation that God had created now it's in exile and it's again dealing with the consequences of its rebellion against God and the consequences of idolatry and unfaithfulness and so that's kind of the image that's being portrayed here then in verse 3 he is to actually bring those dry bones back to life and first of all says that they are to come together and then moving breath once again that they would actually be alive and so it's kind of like the creation account you know if you want to take some notes there you might put Genesis 1 and 2 it's the idea of creating and then putting breath in the life here so we have sort of a two-fold kind of image being portrayed here Uh, first of all the idea that Ezekiel obeys the command to prophesy life and the spirit to the bones and then we see that life ushers in bringing an earthquake rattling all the bones together but then after that the bodies are still lifeless they don't have the breath of life in them and so he commands him once again to prophesy so that this divine breath might bring new life a command that he obeys again in verses 9 and 10 and then you see the restoration of these bones as a guarantee of this symbolic if you will prophetic vision 
for the future. We'll talk more about what that means in just a minute. But uh, the concept that a lot of people have drawn from this is that this was a vision given to Ezekiel and to the nation of Israel about a time in which the Holy Spirit, that is God's Spirit, would come and dwell within them. And so I put the obvious reference to that. If you want to take some notes, you might put Ezekiel 37 dash, then Acts 2, because that's when God's Spirit comes during the day of Pentecost. And it's a fulfillment, first of all, of the fact that Jesus has completed his work. He has left uh, and now poured his Spirit out upon them. And in a sense, empowers believers to live by grace. So, the, of course, the New Testament illustration of this, which we're going to look at in just a minute, is the future kingdom and Israeli kingdom. And we'll talk about Israel in just a minute. But also the reality right now that, in a sense, the Spirit gives life. And if you want to take some notes, you might put down Romans 8, verse 2, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17, and probably the best known in Galatians 6, 8, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in some respects, even in the midst of being discouraged, imagine being a Jew. Imagine having experienced the exile, either experientially or vicariously, in either case, whether they were in taken in exile or they find themselves still in the land. They've seen this devastation. It is giving them a promise that someday there will be these dry bones, this desolate Israel that will actually be raised up again. Now, if Gary Fraser here right now, he'd also talk about the prophetic implications of it. So let me mention those briefly, and that is when you see this prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones, many people feel that a second fulfillment of that happened in 1948, where you actually have the nation of Israel. And so that, I think, is something else that we will see as we get to the next section, because now we move from dry bones. Look at verse 15. Now, again, God gives them and gives Ezekiel another interesting set of things to do. If it's not bad enough to go through all these valley of dry bones, and if you've ever walked through a cemetery at night, you know what I'm thinking or even in the daytime. It's like, ugh. Now, this one's a little different. Verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all of the house of Israel associated with him. And so now he takes two sticks, he brings the two sticks together, and Israel at this time, which is divided between what? A northern kingdom and a southern kingdom comes together, and it's one nation again, Israel. And we see that as well. Uh, Again, this is the idea of taking two separate sticks and communicating. Um, He refers to one of those as the kingdom of Judah, which we've been looking at quite a bit, and the other northern kingdom often referred to as Ephraim. I gave you a couple of references in case you wonder, you know, where that is found. And so in a sense now, Ezekiel is now finding himself, even in a divided kingdom, addressing all of Israel. 
For those of us that have ever been to Israel, we recognize that Israel is all one and the same. But back then, you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And now he has these two sticks and brings them together. And so he writes Israel on both pieces, indicating this idea of God wanting to unite the people together once again. Um, As a footnote, I put this in here in case any of you are not familiar. Why do we have these divided kingdoms? And you can go back to 1 Kings 11, also 1 Kings 15 and 1 Kings 17. And we have, after the reign of Solomon, we now have this split of these kingdoms. And they are split between his two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And then you have, of course, the northern kingdom, which is eventually, essentially wiped out by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom taken into exile where? To Babylon. And so that, again, shows the uniting of his people. And, of course, we can look at the nation of Israel, but also I think this has a secondary implication to us as believers. And, again, after writing the names on the two sticks, he holds the two sticks together. Probably should have gotten two sticks outside here and pulled them together, but that's kind of the idea. Now they're all together, whereas before they were separate. Now they're together. And this is the idea of the reunification of what at the time were two different parts of Israel. And Ezekiel then talks about the fact that all of Israel returns back from the exile and there will be a time of complete reunification. Where is that today? That's where we find it in the nation of Israel. And I think the obvious implication of this, even for us, apart from the nation of Israel, is that we certainly receive power through the spirit and the bonds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through our union with Christ, we're also united together with other Christians with uh, no regard now for tongue, tribe, or nation. You know, when we get to heaven, and even right now in a lot of Christian fellowships, we have all sorts of diversity in terms of tongue and tribe and nation. And this is the idea that whereas before people are divided in different sticks, we all come together in very significant ways. And so again, I see that as a secondary implication as well of bringing all the diverse elements together in the uh, body of Jesus Christ. Finally, just real quickly, verses 24 and following, we have one other promise, and that is that there would be dry bones that will become alive, two sticks that come together, one more. Who's the head? An individual that sits on the throne of David, Jesus himself. And so we see here that God determines for his people to live in unity and peace. And here Ezekiel proclaims this kind of message of reconciliation, which is founded not only on this shared covenant, which they shared, but also on this future king. And he points to a time then there will be a new and even better David who will come and rule over the people. And he will be identified, as we can see here, as a kind and good shepherd. And, of course, you see where Jesus talks about that as well. And so here he reveals a day of cleansing from all idolatry, overseen by a righteous rule by the Davidic king, and also plans a day when his people will live in perfect obedience and in total security in God's land. Now, I take those prophecies to be yet to be fulfilled. Does Israel live today in perfect security in the land? No. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, there are some uh, evidences that 
there are all sorts of things, even mounting again a desire to destroy Israel. And fortunately, though, it has always had great deterrence. So those, I think, are going to be in the future. And also this idea of an everlasting covenant of peace, which we see in verse 26, which again we read about in the book of Revelation, Revelation 20 and following. And then finally, they'll experience a permanent presence of God in the midst of the people. When Jesus comes and reigns in Jerusalem, we will be able to be with God every single day. And so that's, I think, very significant. Offers perpetual joy spanning generations, uh, social instability, which was known by those exiles. I mean, you never knew whether there was going to be more Assyrians or more Babylonians or Egyptians or someone else taking you into captivity would be replaced placed by a new and better David, Jesus Christ. And it also says that again, that individual would dwell with them forever, and that's Emmanuel, which is God with us. We see that in verse 26, and then the relationship between God and his chosen people in verse 28, which gives us a little bit of an idea of how that particular prophecy probably was very encouraging for those who had been in exile or knew of those who were in exile, looking forward to a future kingdom, a future Israel, a future unification, and a time to live in peace. That's an encouragement for us because we've seen some of that fulfilled in our own lifetime, but we know the rest of it will be fulfilled sometime in the future. And so again, we can also see this in the New Testament. Jesus, if you want to put this down in your notes, John 4, verse 24, where Jesus reveals there'll be a day when all the people will worship in spirit and truth. Also in commissioning his disciples to reach the world with the gospel, the so-called Great Commission, he affirms his everlasting presence regardless of circumstance. Didn't we just sing about that in the worship service just a minute ago? Never walk alone. And then as we go in peace and proclaim the gospel, we recognize that Jesus goes with us and guides us every step of the way. So that's a quick overview, and it was a little quicker than I intended because I wanted to end on time because I always like to end on time, uh, so that we can have a little bit of time talking about biblical archaeology. And for those of you that have ever been to Israel, some of this will be kind of familiar territory. For some of you that say, I don't know if I'm ever going to make it to Israel, I'll give you the best tour I can for just a few minutes. And a lot of what I'm going to pull from uh, came from this article that's in Christianity Today. Gordon Govier has been on my program before, and he talked about the top ten discoveries in 2018. And I would have to say, we are living in a time where we have more archaeological evidence confirming the historicity of the Bible than believers have ever experienced before. And a lot of it has happened just in this last year. Now, I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact that Israel is sort of in peace right now, or that uh, the current president moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, or whether there's some kind of um, archaeological boom taking place. But for whatever reason, we are living in a time that believers a century ago could not have imagined. At the turn of the 19th century, there were many people that seriously wondered how accurate the Old Testament was, for example, because it claimed that there was a nation known as the Hittite nation, and there was not a shred of archaeological evidence that the Hittites ever existed. So it had to be an embellishment or an error or something like that. Uh, We had never seen any archaeological evidence of the existence of a David. Um, There was questions whether or not Moses even could read and write, so how could you believe? 
believe that the Old Testament, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible were written by an individual who probably was illiterate. I mean, you just think of all the things that believers had to deal with that we don't have to deal with today. Let's look at just a couple of the examples. The first one's kind of interesting. This one is from an Israeli antiquities authority down at Levi, and they actually found an inscription on a pillar, which is really at a potter's house outside of Jerusalem, but it has the word Jerusalem on it, Jerusalem actually in Hebrew, and this was such an exciting find for him. He said, when I was taking the picture, my hands were shaking, because this is now the oldest inscription we have of the word Jerusalem, in actually kind of a suburb, was probably a place where people came and picked up pottery that they were going to use when they went to the temple. So this is sort of outside of Jerusalem, but you have it right there on the pillar itself. And so that's one of the archaeological finds this year that meant so much, especially to the Israel antiquities individuals that were working there. One that's in this we've talked about before, but again, I recognize some of you come in and out each week, and that is the remarkable find that happened in what used to be called, um, well, today it's called Mosul, but uh, it is considered to be where the tomb of Jonah is. And so as a result, when ISIS took over Mosul, they destroyed the temple or the supposed tomb for Jonah, and maybe it's the temple and the tomb of Jonah, we're not sure, but it was always assumed to be. And when they started digging down, they accidentally found all sorts of other things that corroborate the Bible. Because what they were doing is they were digging down underneath that shrine and that tomb just to find other archaeological material that they might be able to sell to finance ISIS. But when the... um, uh, Iraqi army and the Americans were able to push ISIS out. Archaeologists returned and they recognized that they had unearthed this Assyrian temple in the city of Nineveh. Mosul is the ancient city of Nineveh and uh, they're not exactly in the same spot but pretty close. And so as a result now they are finding all sorts of evidence that confirms the Bible. In particular if you go to the Iraq magazine where this was published, it uh, actually has the uh, biblical order of the various kings. So it shows that even when the Old Testament was talking about the various history of Assyria, every one of them is in the proper order. Sargon II, you read about in Isaiah 20. Sennacherib, 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles, uh, Isaiah 36, Esarhaddon, and then Ashurbanipal in Ezekiel. These are all in perfect order. So what ISIS was doing simply to get a profit, um, in a sense, some financial resources, it opened up an undiscovered um, palace of the Assyrians and further verification of some of the history in the Old Testament. This was found in Egypt. It is a Semitic abecedary. And you're going to say, okay, 
That's a new word for me. That's your word for today. Abecediary. Abecediary is what actually was like when they would have the letters of the alphabet. These actually sometimes help almost like a Rosetta Stone. But what's so interesting here is when we now find this in Egypt, it begins to show us something interesting. Because this was found in a tomb along the west bank of the Nile. And it confirms a question that has always been raised by the liberals about Moses. Matter of fact, you've heard me in this class before talk about the fact that one of the arguments against Moses writing the first five books of the Bible is Moses wasn't literate enough or we didn't have a written language at the time. And you can go to some very liberal seminaries and still have some people say it, but this pretty much ends it pretty quickly because the tomb that they excavated it from dates back to about 1450 B.C., Well, that's about the time of Moses. So now that shows us that indeed writing was common at the time and I think verifies what we see in Exodus 24, chapter 4, or verse 4, where it says Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. And so, first of all, I've always had trouble with this argument even before we had this because the argument was, well, we didn't have writing at that time. You ever heard of the Code of Hammurabi? That existed even before the time of Moses. Yeah, well, Moses maybe wasn't well-educated. Where did Moses go to school? The best school that Egypt ever could have provided to anyone. So, yes, I think that is the case. And it shows that he wasn't the only one writing in the Semitic script at the time there in Egypt. And I'll tell you what, this one this one puts the 45 to the head of a lot of liberal scholarship. That's what for years said, we don't have this kind of writing. Yes, we do. And I just showed you one picture of it. We go on for a little more. Let's take another one here. Let's go from big to small. What is this? This is a Becca weight. And it is really small, as you can see. I showed what it would be on your hand, okay? What in the world is a Becca weight? Well, it turns out that when the uh, individuals doing archaeology, if you've ever seen it, they have these screens and they'll shake down the sand because they use very fine screens because these are very, very small. Well, this is a Becca weight. Okay, what's a Becca weight? Well, in Exodus 38, it tells us that each individual that had to pay a temple tax actually had to pay a half shekel temple tax and that was a becca was used to measure the half shekel tax so now we have found those and this one's really tiny it's only about two tenths of an ounce but it had and I just showed you a minute ago the Hebrew letters inscribed called Becca where was this found? it was found at Robertson's Arch if you've ever been to Israel that's the corner that we take you to and as, as a result as they were sifting through some of the mortar and everything they found these Becca weights which again are something really fascinating indeed so that's an ancient weight but again was used to determine a shekel So I thought for just a minute, what I would do is, let's bring some of our young kids up here. You know, come on, a couple of you, a couple of you that are ones. George wants to come too here. I'm going to give everybody a five shekel uh, coin. How about that? That's a five shekel coin. And you will see up there, I'll even show you. Let's look at this reel. When you do archaeology, you have to have these kind of things. If you look right down there, you can see that that's in Hebrew and that's in Arabic. 
So you can see, or you can borrow this for a few minutes and look at it. And so what, uh, what we have here, but I'll show everybody else up on the screen here. What we have is you have, this is one of these five shekel coins that you can get in Israel. And to this day, you can see that it has the word Israel, it has the word shekel. It also has it both in Hebrew and Arabic. So I thought, okay, guys, I just thought I'd give you a little bit of a, uh, any adults want one? Okay, i got a few extras here, so you can come up afterwards. But I'm just showing you that that was very similar to a shekel. Uh, in this case, that's five shekels, which is worth about a quarter. So four of those would make a dollar. So if you get a couple of those, you could turn them in for a dollar, but you can keep those as your um, uh, souvenir. How's that? So if nothing else, just wanted to give a couple of the young people a chance to see what a five shekel would look like. And I'll leave a few more up here in case anybody else would like a five shekel. We've got a couple over there. So it just gives you an idea of what is happening. Now, when they've been clearing out the mortar in the Temple Mound, they've also come across these. These are these clay seals. You might say, well, what's so significant about that? You know, if you've ever been to the Temple Mound, sometimes they'll let you go underneath. As they go underneath, they've been clearing out some of the mortar. And as they have done so, especially in the Western Wall Plaza, they actually have some of these particular seals, and one of them says, belonging to the governor of the city. Now, why is that important? Well, it turns out in the Old Testament, it talks about the fact that there were governors in Jerusalem, but we never had any archaeological evidence of governors of Jerusalem until now, and this one became so significant that just recently it was presented to the mayor of Jerusalem, and it supports the biblical record, and if you look in the scriptures, you can see there are a number of names of the governors of Jerusalem that are mentioned. Joshua, this would not be the Joshua who lived with Moses. Joshua is a fairly common name, but there's a Joshua was mentioned as a governor in 2 Kings, and Messiah was mentioned as the governor in 2 Chronicles. So now we have archaeological evidence of those governors actually existing and there actually being an office of governor. This one, perhaps one of the most fascinating, but I have to put a question mark to it because those of us that are evangelicals believe this proves this. Those that are liberals aren't so convinced. So, you know, I'll let you figure out which side you fall on. But it turns out that one of these other seals we find refers to Isaiah the prophet. Now, we are missing a letter, so in some respects people aren't sure that that is a specific reference to the Isaiah that we read about in the Old Testament. But it fits pretty well because in the part where they found it in the Temple Mount, they also have found a seal that says King Hezekiah of Judah. And there are at least 17 times in the scriptures where prophet Isaiah is mentioned with Hezekiah. So they were contemporaries. So there's reason to believe this might be, again, a reference to the seal of Isaiah the prophet. Pretty fascinating. By the way, if you do ever go to Israel now, a lot of these are showing up in the Antiquities Museum. So again, that's another place where you can get to see these face-to-face if you'd like. Well, one more. We now have found a ring. It's a 2,000-year-old ring, actually from the Herodium, which is a fortress really kind of south of Bethlehem, so it's outside of Jerusalem. But it is a ring that has the name Pontius Pilate on it. Why would that be significant? Because Pontius Pilate shows up and what? The New Testament. Now, it's not the first time we've run into the name Pontius Pilate. If you've ever been to Israel, um, usually they fly into Tel Aviv, then you stay in Netanyahu, the 
first stop is in Caesarea Maritima, which is right up there, and that is a Roman um, fortress, if you will, and uh, they, many years ago, found a tablet with the name Pontius Pilate on it. Matter of fact, if you go there, they have a reconstruction of it, but if you go to the um, museum, you can see the original. So it's not the first time the name Pontius Pilate is turned up, but again, up until a couple of decades ago, people would say, you guys say that Pontius Pilate actually stood in front of Jesus, but we don't have any archaeological evidence of Pontius Pilate. We do have some historical references, so again, that's, that's a little bit of an overclaim even then. But of course, we have had that particular tablet, but this is sort of interesting because now at the Herodium, which was kind of a desert palace outside of Bethlehem, we have a ring that has the name Pontius Pilate on it. Now, was this a ring worn by Pontius Pilate? Doubtful. It's not that well ornated. It's not that significant. Most likely what it was was a ring that was given to one of the emissaries of Pontius Pilate so that when there were official communications, they would have the ring, they would put wax on it, and they would seal it. And so this was he was carrying out the authority of Pontius Pilate. It's probably not likely that Pontius Pontius Pilate wore that ring, I can't rule it out, but it, I think suggests more that it was somebody under the authority of Pontius Pilate carrying out official transactions. So that's just a brief look at some of the um, archaeological finds just last year. Now some have been found before, but they weren't figured out. It takes a while when they take them, bring them into the lab, and then somebody goes, wait a minute, this is really something important. So um, some of those were found earlier years, but these were all that just happened last year. So I thought, just for a minute, those of you that like the Breakpoint Commentary, that is something that was started years ago by Chuck Colson, but now Eric Metaxas and John Stone Street also talked about three very significant events this year archaeologically. The first one's kind of more scientific. This one came out just the other day by John Stone Street. It goes boom, and this is the one I talked about before, that now scientists are suggesting that there must have been a meteor coming down to this area of the Dead Sea, it caused an explosion about 3,700 years ago and destroyed this particular area known as Tal al-Hammam. Many people believe that that is the ancient city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as a result, archaeologist in Biblical Archaeological Review, Dr. Stephen Collins, says that there was some kind of violent conflagration that just destroyed these cities on the plain there in the Dead Sea. There's melted pottery, scorched foundation rocks, all sorts of ash and other things, which then for centuries made it uninhabitable. There, You couldn't grow anything there as well. And so his argument in the Biblical Archaeological Review is that these signs of a highly destructive, concussive, and thermal event is one that one would actually expect actually described in Genesis 19. So that's more of a scientific conclusion based upon some of the archaeology. Then we also have the one that Breakpoint talked about this year as well. Um, actually, I guess this is from last year. I take that back. And this is where Metaxas points out that in those digging in a particular area in Megiddo, and I know the tour we're going to be taking in October now is going to go to Megiddo, which has not done that before, they actually found all sorts of wine presses and olive presses and things of that nature. And so according to this article that appeared actually last year in Biblical Archaeological Review, they believe 
believe that this is the vineyard of Naboth, which you have in 1 Kings 21. You might remember that Ahab and Jezebel look over and say, I want that vineyard. And he says, I'm not going to sell it to you. So they have him accused of basically heresy and have him executed. This is Jezebel's idea. And uh, as a result, then he was able to get that vineyard. And now we think we've identified the vineyard, which is described in 1 Kings 21. And then one last one, got to end with something to make you smile, and that is the uh, situation that we have now in Tel Lachish. And Tel Lachish is uh, one that is being excavated right now. Matter of fact, if you ever go to Washington, D.C., they have the Museum of Bible, the Bible Museum, and they actually have a very good video right now of Tel Lachish. Well, anyway, interestingly enough, as they have been looking at this, the Israeli Antiquities Authority was digging up Tel Lachish and they found an ancient toilet. Now, why is that important? Well, it turns out that if you go back and you read in, again, 1 Kings, you will read that King Hezekiah was commanded um, to actually remove the high places, smash the sacred stones, and cut down these Asherah poles which were used by Baal worshippers. But then, the verse goes on to say that he demolished the pillar of Baal and destroyed the temple of Baal and made it a latrine to this very day. And that's, I said 1 Kings, I meant 2 Kings chapter 10. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 10. Some of the archaeologists with a little bit of fun said, I guess it turned it from one kind of throne into a different kind of throne. But nevertheless, that just gives you a little bit of an idea of why we are so excited about the fact that archaeology is confirming the Bible. Parker? Parker?